Hi, and welcome to my podcast. I'm your host, Jason, and you found a fun and secret time capsule from my baby son. Each episode, I sit down and chat with a special guest about friendships, pop culture, parenting, and whatever strikes my fancy. Really, the end goal is to make sure that when my son does eventually discover this, he's thoroughly embarrassed. In the meantime, I'm not quite sure where each episode or where the show is going, but getting there should be half the fun. Cloud? Okay, cool. Well, um, I think our levels are okay. Uh, the nice thing about Zoom is it'll kind of auto-level um, most of the time. I am using a new rig right now. My nicer microphone came in, so we'll see if it works. Great. So, yeah, let me do my canned little introduction um, here. Uh, hello, and welcome to Half of the Fun Podcast. I'm your host, Jason, and you found a fun time capsule for my baby son. Each episode, I sit down and chat with a special guest about friendships, pop culture, and parenting. Uh, this week, we're joined with super special guest Scotty D, uh, or Scott, or any number of names that he wishes to go by. Um, so, Scott, I am super excited to have you on the podcast today. I was just reflecting on uh, the surprising amount of uh, travel adventures that we did. Um, you and I did a pretty epic trip to Beijing, I believe when I lived in Japan, um, which was yeah. memorable uh, for me. Uh, and we uh, hung out, but we first met in middle school. Um, so you were just chatting with me before I hit record, but do you want, uh, you recount this clearly um, about how we met? Yeah, yeah. So uh, full disclosure, I met Jason after uh, I had uh, just switched schools. And uh, I didn't know anybody at the new school. Uh, and so this was eighth grade. We were starting off at the, the storied and venerable Hanford High School uh, here in sunny Richland, Washington. And I didn't know anybody and I was uncomfortable. And I, it was a big change for me because I'd been in a Catholic school my whole life. And uh, this guidance counselor, she's trying to help me sit down. And so she gets me this group of guys to go meet and, and to sit down with uh, at lunch. And I, I remember it was like, uh, it was you, it was race. It was Aaron, Adam Hinman. And I think one other dude, I can't remember. Probably uh, Forrest. Yeah. 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 So I sit down and it's awkward as all these things are. And then after at one point I ask, uh, so, uh, does anybody here like red dwarf? And I believe that's the beginning of our friendship which uh we are going to talk about today that is the topic of our podcast uh is our first my first deep dive into red dwarf which uh defined our relationship i believe um certainly in middle school it's something that i um really really loved um if you had to describe uh red dwarf to someone who wasn't into late 80s science fiction British comedies, how would you describe it in an elevator pitch? So I, I think what they were going for on that is like, what if it was the far future, but only the dumbest person survived and just the most neurotic people? It was the opposite of all the hope of Star Trek uh, made for, for comedy. And it really, it's, it's lasting appeal is there. Like, I still can't believe, I was just looking on the, the wiki, 
that they went to like 12 seasons and it's, like no it is, it is currently airing like i uh i watched like an episode of just the le- latest season and these dudes are old now i mean uh so yeah. this started airing in wikipedia tells me it started um uh 88 and 89 so that's been a while um i'm gonna read what the traditional crawl was for the first couple of seasons to to set the context for everyone i'm gonna do my best holly voice hold on this is an sos call from the mining ship red dwarf the crew are dead killed by a radiation leak the only survivors are dave wister who was in suspended animation during the disaster and his pregnant cat who was safely sealed in the hold revived three million years later wister's only companions are a life form who evolved from the cat and Arnold Rimmer, a hologram simulation of one of the dead crew. I am Holly, the ship's computer, with an IQ of 6,000, the same IQ as 6,000 PE teachers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, so, yeah, it was this show that I, and I assume it was the same for you. So this is back in late, I mean, late, uh, early 90s. Uh, so I always remembered it from uh, PBS would do like two pledge drives a year. And so you would have to stay up to a really random time. And I had these crappy VHS copies where you, it would show like two episodes of Red Dwarf and then have like a 30 minute pledge drive break. I remember as a kid, like that's exactly how I was introduced to it as well. But I seem to recall those pledge drive uh, inserts just going forever. Like I, there was nothing harder as a kid in the nineties than just that long interruption. But this is, you know, pre-internet, pre-internet 2.0, cell phones or anything like that. So we would still watch it because keep in mind, people need to kind of understand where we grew up. Like it's not just suburbia, it's an empty desert. So yeah, when there wasn't something to do, there really wasn't something to do. It's true. And like, it was super hot and like fairly spread out suburbs. So like, if you didn't have a car, which you know, in middle school, we didn't have cars, um, like there wasn't a bus to get you anywhere and you couldn't walk to anyone's house. And even if you could go in walking distance, you know, in the summer, it was, you know, 90 to 100 degrees. So um, it really restricted a lot of like what you could do. Yeah, yeah. And I lived in a neighborhood with zero kids. It, this was all retired people and 50 plus living on like a the side of a country club and just uh, really got to love my parents for choosing that neighborhood. But I guess it was cheap back in the day. And uh, I think you were my intro to all the guys there at Hanford because you all sort of lived by each other. Yeah, like Forrest and I lived kind of close by. And yeah, and race like we we were in that magical like biking, walking distance yeah, it, it's it's not what it was, but, but let's get back to Red Dwarf and, yeah. and the PBS experience. No. Right, so you're like, you watch like a couple episodes, there's this, this huge break, and they're always asking you to pledge. Um, I managed to finagle my parents into pledging a couple of times at least. So I have like a Red Dwarf t-shirt, um, like a, a tote. Um, I don't think we got the coffee mug level. But yeah, it was just kind of this really random thing that never really aired on any mainstream television. So it's the super niche experience. So whenever you find someone that liked Red Dwarf, especially back in the early 90s, you know you had 
met a kindred spirit. Yes, yes. And that's sort of the experience, I think, of a lot of, uh, of 90s nerds before there were like BBSs and, and chat rooms and shit like that. There really was a sense of, of, of isolation when you had these very niche interests that, that people hadn't heard of. Like, we've all seen like the Monty Python movies during class parties and stuff. And I mean, maybe they shouldn't have showed us uh, Life of Brian at Catholic school, but what are you going to do? <laughs> and like I had Comedy Central, so I'd watched all of those uh, uh, episodes of Monty Python's Blind Circuit. So I, I was plugged into like good comedy and my, my dad had shown me the Marx Brothers and like some of these things that were real classics. But this was its like its own thing because it it, it plugged into that that part of us that was, you know, nerdy and escapist where it's like, there could be these other things that are bigger and better out there. And that, that part of your imagination that you're looking for. And then it just gave you this totally different uh, approach to it. That is that, that biting, you know, post Thatcher British satire that, you know, could really thumb the nose at the establishment and the, and the idealized view of things like that. And I, I think it's, it's, had its uh, such longevity for a reason and it really was like a huge enjoyment for me as a kid for me too and i think that was kind of my little window into um a little bit of like british culture for sure um i don't think i had gotten into um the douglas adams books which are i think a very come from that very same kind of background in terms of slightly absurdist uh, definitely a response, I think, to what was happening in the UK at the time, for sure. What What did you get into? Like, what was it about Red Dwarf that lit the fire for you? I think it was because it was unlike anything that we saw on TV. Like, my family really enjoyed Star Trek The Next Generation, and it's something we, we watch as a family, and I'm sure I'll do a, another podcast about it with another Star Trek super fan. So I enjoyed science fiction, uh, certainly as a, as a child. And then to see something so irreverent about science fiction and a lot of the jokes were passing over my head, but I knew I knew that it was like Red Dwarf was super raunchy. Yeah. And so like it's all these kind of things that clicked together uh, was what it was really for me. That and just, I think, being a little bit of a nerdy geek um, knowing that it was a little bit exclusive or hard to find also made things interesting. I also enjoyed comic books a little bit, to, not to the extent uh, that some of the other guys did. Uh, I did not have like video games uh, or Nintendo or Super NES or anything like that. So uh, yeah, I had a lot of energy to watch uh, super random British science fiction TV and read a lot of books. Yeah, and there's also one thing you introduced me to as well that I think fits into the genre too, that it's very similar to how you're describing, you know, being into some of those niche British products at that age. It was that was what it was like to like anime as a little kid, like pre-internet age in the VHS era, you know. Uh, but I digress. So yes, love Japanese culture, things like that. But I'm going to circle back to what we originally were talking about, Red Dwarf. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I, I keep going on tangents. No worries. I love it. You're, we're uncovering future topics for future episodes. One of the things I appreciated, we talk about Doctor Who's like Monsters of the Week and things like that. What I didn't realize until much later is that Red Dwarf explicitly did not have extraterrestrial life and that in everything you encountered 
including the episode we're going to chat about, Polymorph, everything stemmed from Earth or genetically mutated life forms from Earth. Uh, cat was descended from cats. So basically, not only are they is this cast stranded like three million years in deep space, the, the universe is empty basically, and just like how crushingly lonely that is <laughs> bleak and also kind of funny I, I i think that actually taps into one of the cool themes about this and not to do like too like much of a deep read of a sitcom but you know that it's uh as an adult now i can see like some of the satire themes that are connected to probably what was post-industrial britain and you have all the aliens they run into are are the byproducts of of man dabbling in God's domain. You know, all the the genetically engineered life forms that come in either the giant space bugs in uh, the psychic vampire episode, which was really good, uh, or the one that we're going to talk about in polymorph, or with the uh, the like orangutan looking people. But if you want to talk polymorph. We also have to remember that we don't think too hard about some of these things. It's just, yeah. It's true. I will p bring them up super briefly, uh, some of the things. But I did, did, did want to go back. How remarkable it was to have a late 80s science fiction slash sitcom that had half the cast be people of color, when you think about it. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Which kind of blows my mind. And think about if you have like an, uh, not African-American, but like a uh, basically a, a black man in the lead of a science fiction show, the next thing you could think of would be Mantis. <laughs> Whoa, that's a deep cut. Uh, Yo, or, oh God, I don't know anybody who ever watched that. <laughs> that is true. Um, or just now how remarkable it is for like Star Trek Discovery to have like, you know, a, a woman of color as a lead. So uh, maybe that's, I think something has to be said for that too. But let's actually dive into Polymorph <laughs> now. Yeah. So the, we've already told the setup for the general type of show this is, is. So they're stuck on this giant mining ship. And this is one of the few episodes that opens differently and that there's a warning that this is going to be extremely scary. And you see that there's uh, a genetically engineered life form, a polymorph, that has uh, escaped onto the ship. Yeah, yeah. It is. Uh, it's the show opens. It's got a uh, a pod that's floating in space, and it says, "Warning, you know, genetically engineered life form, extremely dangerous." And then it shows that there's a hole, and then uh, in the pod itself, and then it zooms in on on Red Dwarf. And this also, I, I want to point out, really good model work. Like, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't look great now, all things considered. But, you know, as a kid, like, it didn't look bad for no, a show that probably had a, a budget of roughly 20 bucks. It definitely and, holds up. And if I, like, bought some earlier DVDs that were quote-unquote remastered and they replaced it with really crappy CGI, and I'd, I would rather have the models, quite frankly. I don't know. I, I do love bad CGI. Think about like every game of Wing Commander you ever played. Well, you um, know, you can always just uh, look at the Star Wars remastered, remastered special ooh. edition. Yeah, Instead. Dude, that, is, that, that is harsh. Uh, so, yeah, the polymorph, and they don't need to bother with like, how did it get on the ship? Did they pick up the ship? Like, no, screw it. 
they do it a little bit in, in media res hey, res res and uh, I this is one of the better parts where it shows the tone of, of the show where you've got this ground level camera like a monster scuttling around in a cargo bay and this and that and then it comes to the mirror and it's just this little you know weird slug looking thing that's ooh and then just doing these fast cuts because the polymorph is uh, a genetically engineered life form that can change into any shape and it just goes like no no need to bother with like changing side effects and and that plays with the right tone too because you know you don't need to be too much of a try hard about about this stuff like oh look how fearsome this is and like uh we understand that the polymorph it's a genetically injured life form that was supposed to be a pet and it feeds on emotions and when it eats emotions it takes that whole spectrum of emotion or uh, like it, you know, kind of a platonic ideal of what that emotion is in your personality off. And that changes uh, the way people act. So let's, let's get into uh, one of the most iconic scenes in, in my memory <laughs> of, of uh, Red Dwarf is uh, when the polymorph finds Lister. It's true. So then we cut to basically Lister is preparing a fancy meal for Kat. And it's a little weird because they're in the officer's quarters, but they're using all these weird medical supply, total tangent. They're using weird medical supplies like scalpels, um, uh, bedpans, and everything like that because he wants to be fancy and not use plastic. My question is, are there, are you, or is there so not silverware on a giant ship that can like hold five thousand people? There's not like one set of like officers' quarter silverware that hasn't survived. Like I think that uh, what it was is that I mean it was like it was a good gag <laughs> for sure uh, because it shows like uh, Lister is taking a drink out of a, a, a frothy beer out of a uh, a beaker that would essentially look like it's a uh, um, <laughs> a urine sample. For sure. And, I think yeah. the best visual but, gag is definitely using, uh, was it a cow inseminator for please <laughs> lemon? I'm going to have to, yeah. do, I'll have to double check with my wife to see if that's an actual like cow inseminator since I'm sure she's done that before. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so Lister's making a meal and it's not, it, and this is a key part of the, the movie or the show that Lister pretty much only eats curry. He only eats Indian food. And so he loves curry. And we have these great scenes in different episodes of Lister just making things comically hot. But in this episode, he's making uh, chamois kebabs. And, yes, yes. Uh, I didn't know what that was, but now I live in D.C. and I eat uh, a lot of uh, Pakistani food. So I'm, I, I'm familiar with what exactly kebabs talking about. And... Uh, like so now i get what that is so in this scene he's cooking this the cat is disgusted with him and i'm not going to try to do justice to the cat's voice or 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 the actors themselves but he goes and uh, decides that uh the cat's too grossed out by the medical utensils and things like that and so it, it's just uh lister there and also lister um uh the the polymorph it bounces into the room it's in the shape of a beach ball and lister doesn't notice some reason because of that would ruin the comedy and then it it morphs into a uh i think a kebab on the plate and 
It's true. Yes. Yeah. So in the meantime, Lister tries to figure out what's happening. But the most the most important detail here is then that Crichton, the cl- the robot, comes in. And he starts cleaning, <laughs> cleaning the room with his, with his groinal attachment vacuum. It's true. So uh, the actor here is literally there's this <laughs> long vacuum hose coming out uh, f- from his crotch, and he's got this vacuum attachment, and so. They chat about that a little bit, and Lister stabs into one of the kebabs, which is the polymorph, and it like starts attacking him. On yeah, so a little kebab is, is strangling him, and uh, <laughs> I I think uh, what happened because there was also the side gag with the uh, the underwear, but I I don't really remember how that one worked. I but you. I remember oh. like so yeah. he he throws it. Uh, into uh, the laundry hamper and it turns into a snake and he's ter- Lister is terrified and being attacked by a snake and Crichton pulls it off and then Lister says this is my all time second worst fear and Crichton says what's your first and then the polymorph just emerges this massive horrific like demonic looking creature and you know, Lister says that and then it just cuts to a quick scene of a little sucker comically just hitting Lister in the face and going and then it eats Lister's fear. It's true. You you miss the 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 most like the most iconic. I think the most iconic part. So yes, he the Charmy kebab attacks him, and he throws it away. He's like, okay, well, we got to get out of here. We got to figure out what's going on. So he's just wearing a robe at this point. So of course he puts on this, his boxers, and the boxers is the polymorph and the polymorph starts shrinking his boxers basically so he collapses on the ground writhing on his back and he's like Crichton Crichton who's the robot like help me get this off (laughs) so he's like writhing on the ground and this robot's coming up with this like flopping hose out of his crush and then Rimmer walks in yeah and so Crichton is down there between Lister's legs trying to get them off and shoving around it we have the Rimmer response, and like, oh, you would, you'll bonk anything, won't you, Lister? And uh, like that, I mean, really, we're not doing a scene justice in describing it, but there was just something. It, it really was that level of raunchiness. Where they were, they had a lot of weird ways to go uh, in that. In yeah, that show and, there. and I totally, I totally forgot that uh, most of Red Dwarf was filmed in front of a live audience. So it is a, like a multi-cam sitcom, but there is like, it's not a laugh track. They're like. I'm sure certain bits were impossible to do in front of a live audience, but I'm sure like taped in front of a, yeah. a live audience. So like it was definitely hysterical. So uh, Lister has his um, fear sucked out of him and he turns into this like dirty, hairy type of like psychotic killer dude. Like he's ready to like. Yeah. Like I think at one point in line he says, well, we go down to the armory strap a nuclear warhead to my head. I go up there and, you know, headbutt him and say, Bob's your uncle or something like that. And he, yeah, he, he goes full on bonkers. Now let's talk about what are the, uh, what are the emotions that the polymorph eats from the rest of the crew? Yeah, let's, let's skip ahead. Um, so they I think list- we might be a good time to describe who the rest of the crew is too. Right. So, so we've described Lister. The next one is Cat, who is descended from cats. So like a typical cat, he is like super vain. He's into himself. He is an, um, the the actor himself is a dancer. So he's always kind of like 
dancing and, and scatting and like it's is this yeah he's what was described by danny john jules when he was talking who's the actor who played him when he was talking, he's like it's sort of like uh james brown crossed with a cat like he's he slides in he's super cool he's got really fancy suits on all the time and uh, he's got this incredible self-centeredness and vanity of like typical cat behavior and just yeah so there's him and then there is uh, Crichton, which we've previously described, but he's basically a cleaning mechanoid that is a little bit is very perm and proper and kind of has a weird almost American accent. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so one side note about Crichton. So his actor, I think is Robert Lulin. I think he played Q in Star Trek The Next Generation. No, no, that it's um, that's wrong. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Well, I, that's I, John. John Delancey is the one who was Q in Star Trek: Next Generation. Did not have to look that up. Right. Right. Okay. So <laughs> Crichton also he's got a very he's like a parody of like the British servile class of like uh, what the what an old butler would have been like in the in, you know the twenties in, in Britain, and he he follows all these things, and he's a, he's a robot, so. He's always talking about he's programmed to be humble and serve and to sacrifice himself. And and, uh, and he yeah. definitely has emotions. So don't think of like data from the Star Trek The Next Generation. He's definitely a very neuro. He's a way neurotic. funnier version. Of way that's funnier. So that's Crichton. And then Rimmer is played by Chris Berry, whom if you yeah. watched the old Tomb Raider, Tomb Raider films, not the reboots, uh, he is the butler guy. Uh, so that captures a little bit of his like fussiness, but Rimmer is this failed like astro navigation dude who's basically a vendor cleaning repairman, and he is uh, loves being anal retentive about things and is not a very smart man either. I don't know how would you compare describe him or what what aspect of British culture do you feel like he. All right. I, I feel like Rimmer was supposed to be, I, I think, most representative of of what I will call like, you know, Thatcher Tory Britain. You know, like this was the kind of people who are thinking that like, you always do things the right way. The only way to be in life is, is in that, that sort of aristocratic mindset of like, you've got to keep pushing up, up the ziggurat, you know. Uh, and if you're, you're not achieving and at these very high levels, then you are, you know, worthless and, and, and stupid. And, and Rumor is the perfect foil for Lister because he's this, uh, he is anal retentive. He's a very much by the book and by the space regulations and all that stuff. But he's such a complete colossal failure at his life. Like he is, he always was trying to graduate uh, to a higher level to become an officer, but he could never pass the test. So he's essentially just like the best of the chicken soup repairman and Lister is of course the lowest grade of chicken soup repairman. And I mean, the vending machine repairman, as you were saying, and like the way they play off each other is, uh, is terrific. Now also I want to point out about Rimmer's character. Rimmer is dead, dead as a doornail, dead as a can of spam. Um, it's true. And he is a hologram. The so, ship mm. can produce one hologram at a time because it takes a lot of energy. And so Holly, the ship's computer, decided uh, to produce Rimmer 
to keep Lister sane because he thought uh, Rimmer and Lister bickering would keep Lister's mind off of the incredible loneliness and, and insanity of his situation in deep space. And uh, mm-hmm. Chris Berry just plays this role to a T. Just, I think all the characters. Oh, and here's a fun fact that Wikipedia reminded me. Arnold J. Rimmer, J stands for Judas. Yeah. Oh, God, because he is the, uh, the failed son of his family. He is the failed, and failed son, one of my favorite terms. Uh, just Google it if you want to know what the vernacular for fail son is, but it's one of the best things to describe life in DC and the people I run into. So. Oh, uh, we'll definitely get back to that. So they go to try to find the polymorph, and surprise, surprise, the polymorph takes one emotion from each of them. So, uh, from the cat, it takes his vanity his from sense of cool. In the sense of cool, from Crichton, it takes his sense of guilt, or the, <laughs> I think, which Crichton says, like, it's the only thing that keeps, like, modern, the uh, a very inter- interesting interpretation of, like, that's the only thing that keeps us, like, acting like civilized human beings. It's just a sense of guilt. And <laughs> I don't know, I definitely want to unpack that, or if that's just a British thing. And then... For for Rimmer, it takes his anger, I believe. Yeah. Oh God, yes, yeah. Because when when he takes Rimmer, it's the polymorph morphs into Rimmer's mother, oh, and God. just taunts and taunts and gets him so angry. And I think the final thing that pushes him over the edge is something like alphabetty spaghetti or, or whatever the fuck that <laughs> is. True. And. Oh God! And just the the character work for Chris Berry there, where his face is all contorted and he's losing his mind in a very like, he really made sold that so much. And then you see him as as Rimmer without anger. It's this complete transformation and so comedically done uh, of just this like an, almost a uh, a caricature of a completely soft hyper liberal college professor, you know. It's it like was, all the all the what all the the MAGA chuds imagine uh, college professors to be like. We're just like, oh, he's got his pipe here and thick rimmed glasses, and he's talking, you know, about oh, well, he's got a shirt on that says "Give Keisha a chance." It's like, <laughs> why don't we go find the monster, reason with it, uh, sacrifice ourselves so it can exist? And just really uh, a great turn there. And then the cat. Mm-hmm. Oh, you got to tell people what the cat becomes. Oh, the cat just becomes this like hobo. He's drinking a forty out of a brown paper bag. It, it, it's this startling transformation, um, too, which is pretty funny. And then Crichton turns into like a sociopath. A sociopath, <laughs> so kind of like lore from Star Trek. Like he just doesn't care, and he just like wants to kill everyone. Though I think the best part. So yes, definitely Rimmer's portrayal. I think is best of this super soft, li- li- whatever. Like what you would. Like hippie is what we would have called it back in the day, but that's become like a totally different thing now. Mm-hmm. So and he uh, wants yeah. he wants to form a committee. It's like we're we're losing real sight of the real issue here, which is what are we going to call ourselves? And um, and he chooses the committee <laughs> for the liberation and integration of terrifying organisms and their rehabilitation into society, uh, which the abbreviation is clitoris. 
<laughs> and no small amount of irony that the ten-year-old us did not know what the clitoris was. <laughs> I was just like, oh, whatever. Still like, don't. Still <laughs> I know, don't. I know. You know. Um, so <laughs> they tromp around and accidentally kill. Basically, uh, to kind of wrap up this episode, they accidentally killed the polymorph because they had fired heat-seeking bazookoid blast at it earlier and finally it like ran into its own bazookoid blast yeah i i think that <laughs> good physical comedy bit on that like you just gotta see it oh and the end of the episode is i think they cut back to the pod where the gelf creature um or sorry the polymorph originally escaped from and then the the final teaser is the pod is slowly rotating and then it says like a bumper sticker almost contents too. <laughs> Yeah, so it's just nothing was solved. And it was a good end, like a good joke. And in a lot of the shows, in their self-contained narratives, uh, despite some of the later seasons having like an overarching like series uh, narrative going on through it, like six and seven, I think we're, we're pretty big on that. And then all the new ones. Oh, man. Okay, so... Um... You can find Red Dwarf on uh, iTunes. You can buy ep- individual episodes on iTunes, I believe, on YouTube. Uh, so I would recommend that episode. Um, one that I just recently rewatched while I was in the process of refreshing myself, uh, Gunmen of the Apocalypse uh, is oh. hilarious. And it basically is just making fun of the Oculus Rift the entire time, even before the Oculus Rift came out. Yeah, that was fantastic. That is oh. such a great episode. What about... Uh... I mean, I, I also think, is it is it uh, Sirens? That one was a favorite as well. Sirens is super fun. Back to Reality is super depressing, but really good. Yo, but that one, one, like any of the ones where they have Dwayne Dibley, that's, or we <laughs> haven't talked about Ace Rimmer, which is. So, uh, Scott, as we wrap up, are do you have anything you want to plug in terms of media you're consuming, uh, papers you're releasing, or anything like that? Uh, I mean, like, uh, I had a big missile defense paper under my real name that I, I, I released uh, last August and through uh, uh, the Indo-Asia-Pacific Defense Journal, uh, which is run by the DOD out of Honolulu. So, you know, really, really woke stuff. Um, you know, I'm definitely, definitely fighting the power with that one. When I think all I was talking about is uh, non-proliferation regimes and the need to start a, a new weapons limitations thing. And then the other stuff is I, you and I were working on a parody of Ready Player One, which was just me turning slowly more socialist and, and, and <laughs> writing about how obsession with strip mining 80s culture is just like, you know, a sign of the decay of our minds and our time that we've just given up on anything. And uh, uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm on a hiatus, but I'm Johnny Tube Socks, one word there. And uh, I. Uh, I'm going to try to get some more uh, serious uh, research work. And, you know, I, I, I hope we can do a future episode, too, where we talk about our, our trips in Asia and, and spending time there. And, and I actually, I, I really want to stress this about how important it is for, I, I think, a lot of people is that what it meant for us as kids who grew up in kind of a small town, getting to immerse ourselves in, in a different culture and especially being in a culture that, you know, is very dissimilar to American culture. Because there's something to be said for going over to, to Western Europe, but really being someplace where the, the norms that you're raised in 
are, are, are gone and you have to have that degree of humility and, you know, to learn and to adapt and to really, you know, listen to your fellow man, like how much that, that is good for kids. Well, yeah. And thank you uh, again for uh, indulging me on this podcast and talking a lot more about a key nerdy interest in my life. I will definitely have you on a future podcast. I'm going to click pause here. Uh, but otherwise, thanks again. Oh, Jason, this was great, man.